0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We've talked a lot about chronic pain issues on this program over the years and how people who live with chronic pain and who are subjected to uh, debilitating, agonizing chronic pain 24-7 sometimes are driven to the point of suicide. And one of our guests on this program a number of years ago did, as many of you may remember, commit suicide shortly after we spoke with her. So, the news on uh, globalnews.ca early this week was that British Columbia is decriminalizing small personal quantities of hard drugs uh, for personal use, decriminalizing. All right, fine, that's one part of the story. But there's another part to this. And the other part is chronic pain patients across Canada, well over a million, some in suicide-inducing agony, are experiencing opioid prescription medications being reduced arbitrarily often after many years of successful pain abatement and without any incidents to be concerned about. We've talked to them, and I've talked to doctors who have told me off the record that they're afraid to prescribe opioids, even though they work for their patients, because they're concerned the medical colleges will discipline them, punish them. So why are chronic pain patients in both Canada and the United States increasingly denied successful dosing of prescription medication, opioids, which allows some quality of life. This is a big story, and it involves millions of people, and don't think of chronic pain as being headaches. It's very serious business. Dr. Hans Clark is the Director of Pain Services um, and Medical Director of the Pain Research Unit in the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Management at Toronto General Hospital. He's a staff anesthesiologist and the President-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. Dr. Clark, good to have you back with us. How are you?
1: Always a pleasure, Roy. I'm doing great, thanks.
0: I always like to ask doctors how, how they're doing. You never, nobody ever asks a doctor how you are. <laughs> That's what I like to do. Kate Nicholson is the executive director and founder of the National Pain Advocacy Center in the United States. It's a nonprofit organization. They have Canadian advisors. The mission is to advance the health and human rights of people in pain. Kate is a former chronic pain patient herself and a U.S. government lawyer. And we've talked f- for years. How are you, Kate?
2: Doing well, thank you, Roy. How are you?
0: <laughs> thank you. I'm doing fine. Let's talk about Nobody this British Columbia. Nobody
2: ever how they're doing, so you know.
0: <laughs> Nobody has no. They always tell us how we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Nobody asks, but they tell us how we're doing. Uh, let me ask you, um, Kate, first. What are your thoughts of the decision by the British Columbia government? And it really is a two-parter, isn't it? It's sort of the one part affects the people who are addicted and uh, who are, there's great concern about, and they're now, they're they're small quantities of drugs being decriminalized or the possession, but there's the other side of the equation and that's the pain patient.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting point, um, Roy. I, I mean, I tend to be a fan of decriminalization and other harm reduction efforts amidst a drug overdose crisis that continues to escalate. I think we need new ideas and more aggressive approaches to treat the actual problem in front of us. But the common thread here is this. Um, it's just this sort of, sort of oversight and prosecutorial approach that has harmed people with pain uh, who require medical use of opioids. Um, and that group of people still is not receiving sufficient attention because they're not in the headlines every day. So decriminalization does not mean that drug possession is illegal. It just means it won't be prosecuted. And yet, as you mentioned in your introduction, prescribers are afraid uh, to provide uh, medical opioids to people who have been on them in many cases for years because they fear this sort of oversight and and prosecutorial approach. And that's the conundrum.
0: Yeah, Um, I should tell our listeners that Uh, Kate Nicholson's National Pain Advocacy Center. The website is nationalpain.org. Dr. Clark, your thoughts on the initiative in British Columbia, but as well a perspective uh, from someone who deals with pain and pain patients on a daily basis in a very direct manner. How significantly serious is chronic pain across this country and the United States, and what percentage of the population suffers with chronic pain, and how devastating can it be?
1: All right, Roy. well, I mean, let's tackle the, the very first question, how I feel about what's happened in BC. And I can tell you that we know that, you know, the, the reason people have been dying as a consequence of this uh, opioid crisis has been polysubstance abuse and, you know, the increased... Uh, uh, you know, dangerous supply of street fentanyl and, and these other, you know, uh, molecules that are that are very toxic and, and kill people. And so, you know, decriminalizing these things, uh, as Kate said, makes sense from a harm reduction uh, standpoint. I, I would agree as well. Now, you know, you bring in the question of that chronic pain patient and pain in North America. We know that twenty percent of the population suffers from a chronic pain condition. And so, you know, think about that number. I know you mentioned a million at the at the outset of this uh, this radio station in terms of the opioid issue, but there are millions, even more than that, that are suffering from chronic pain. And so, when when we think about where we are in terms of chronic pain and in terms of opioid prescribing and and the the negative impact and the fallout that's happened as a consequence of those CDC guidelines and ultimately the the guidelines that that we somewhat uh, uh, kind of also rubber stamped in, in Canada is that there have been these negative consequences and these unseen consequences and i think one of the most you know heartening things was the same minister uh you know minister carolyn bennett who gave that uh announcement about the decriminalization at our canadian pain society meeting you know a couple of weeks ago stood up and said that you know we get it we understand that we potentially didn't get this right and there has been a fallout for the chronic pain patient and so You know, at a national level, at a federal level, I think there's an understanding where, you know, probably thanks to, you know, to you and and other people who have taken up this cause to to really speak the message of what has happened to many of our pain patients. And so, you know, the federal level is one thing, but you and I know that, you know, uh, it's the provincial uh, jurisdictions that treat uh, our patients and give funds to change things and move things forward. So let's let's hope that that's going to follow shortly.
0: Now, there's a big difference between the street fentanyl and uh, the prescription opioids that are legitimate, is is there not? And uh, part B of that, let me come to the provincial issue, when doctors have said to me, pain doctors, family doctors, have said to me that uh, they're concerned or they're afraid, some of them have said they're afraid, to prescribe medication that they've been prescribing for their patients because the colleges, the uh, physicians and surgeons, may threaten them or may even pull their licenses. I've heard that more than once.
1: Oh, absolutely, Roy. And so, you know, I I do think we have moved past that fear, like, you know, there's still a lot of fear, but we've moved past that scenario where we really, you know, I'm hopeful that doctors aren't so afraid of their license being taken away and things of, uh, of that happening. But what the unfortunate consequence has been is that many physicians, as you said, aren't willing to take on a pain patient. And so think about the number and the millions of pain patients. Think about Uh, a family physician being afraid to do this and expecting a pain doctor to do this we just don't have enough of them Roy to be able to do this so we do have to swing this pendulum back so that the population can access physicians and access care by physicians at that primary care level.
0: Yeah just thinking of the numbers I said a million because I I didn't know I thought it was a million and a half but you say 20% of the population uh lives with chronic pain that's in this country if i'm doing my math properly at 37 million that would be uh about 7.4 million people approximately we don't have a city in in this country that has 7.4 million people yeah.
1: absolutely right and and you know, when we look at the numbers in terms of accessibility of you know multidisciplinary clinics and or or finding a a pathway, especially for those that live in, in in the rural parts of Canada, you know, one of the good things that you know potentially COVID has done it has opened up telemedicine, virtual healthcare, and you know we still have a hard time reaching these seven million individuals who need
0: who need help. I know if I opened the phone lines right now and said if you're struggling with chronic pain and you're having difficulty obtaining medication, phone lines would be jammed in 60 seconds. Kate, would you uh, share with us please the, what needs to be known, what needs to change about uh, pain treatment and availability of medication for chronic pain patients and how the Supreme Court of the United States and the Center for Disease Control both come into play.
2: Uh, Certainly. I I did want to mention, though, since you're talking numbers, that in the U.S., 50 million have uh, pain every day or nearly every day, and 20 million have this sort of debilitating, life-altering pain that that you're talking about most often, Roy, which is people who regularly can't engage in basic life activities like washing the dishes or lifting a child or going out for a walk or or working. Um, And we're seeing this tremendous chilling effect where about that people who have been prescribed opioids for their pain now can't get into care in 50% of the primary care clinics in the United States. So people are not just having trouble getting their medication. They're also being dropped in healthcare altogether. Um, And a lot of this is a chilling effect. Um, The same thing as you're talking about in Canada, where the fear is uh, the the medical colleges here. It's a variety of of sources. Um, It is the, the the Drug Enforcement Agency uh, prosecuting uh, clinicians. It is uh, also state medical boards, uh, insurers, all of whom took uh, parts of the CDC's 2016 guidance uh, for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, quite literally. Um, And uh, so there have been developments in both of these areas recently. I just wanted to mention, uh, as you raised it, that the U.S. Supreme Court will be issuing a decision as early as tomorrow, but certainly this month, um, in a couple of cases that uh, went up uh, regarding um, the criminal requirement for prosecuting doctors under the Controlled Substances Act, so our drug trafficking provision. There's an exception for prescribers. Um, and the the problem, and I think the reason the Supreme Court took the case, is that in some of the circuit courts in this country, um, the criminal intent requirement, which is usually how we meet out responsibility for serious crimes, has been removed almost entirely. So we'll be looking for that decision, Um, and we participated as amicus curiae, which is a friend of the court, which means we weren't a party to the case, but have an interest, and our interest was just this conversation that we're having today, which is the chilling effect on care of people with pain and other people who require controlled substances because they're a mainstay in modern medicine for not just pain or addiction, but ADHD and epilepsy and lots of other conditions. Um, In terms of the update to the CDC guidelines, so they published um, an updated guideline this year. Um, They had a period of open comment, which is now closed. I, uh, in Disclosure, was as part of a work group that looked at the initial version of the guideline. And there are some things to be hopeful about and some things to be concerned about. Uh, the hopeful things is that the two provisions that were so widely misapplied, both in the U.S. and in Canada, um, day and dose provisions that were really applied very strictly as one-size-fits-all mandates, are no longer uh, part of the, the top line or 12 recommendations in this guideline, and that's a good thing. There's also a lot of language acknowledging the harm to chronic pain patients, acknowledging the misapplication, stating that doctors need discretion to treat the patient in front of them, um, and that nothing in the guidelines should be applied inflexibly as laws or mandates. So that's all really positive. But on the other hand, there are still a lot of problems. They, um, the CDC is continuing to focus on morphine milligram equivalents, um, uh, and I'm worried that that's uh, sort of their focus on that is still going to cause uh, implementation problems because it's really a lot of this force tapering and oversight is based on those, um, those numbers, the morphine milligram equivalents. There is still a preference articulated against opioids, but just for uh, chronic pain, um, and they're still only considering evidence for, uh, efficacy of OB-AIDS if if studies last over a year, uh, which there aren't a lot of studies that last over a year because there are real ethical problems with having long-term randomized controlled studies with uh, real suffering people. Um, There are some real concerns in the tapering section. Uh, They're still sort of suggesting that once a taper is begun, it should never be reversed on a lot of the evidence we now have about 15 studies showing the dangers of tapering uh, people who have been stable on opioids including that it increases their risk of suicide and overdose by three to five fold and yet those studies haven't made their way into the guidance um, and they're still sort of suggesting that once you begin a taper you shouldn't reverse it for any reason which is bizarre medical advice when someone you know usually you don't tell a doctor to to ignore um, signs of distress in their patients. Right. The other thing I would say uh, without you know going on too long about this, and this is an over 200 page document, so there's a lot there, um, is that it is greatly expanded. It no longer just applies to chronic pain. It applies to acute pain and subacute pain and chronic pain. Okay. So it's yeah, going to cover virtually all pain now.
0: I have to stop you there kate because we're just yeah. seconds away from being out of time and you know what you're talking about because you were a chronic pain patient dr clark is the is the reality going to improve for the chronic pain patients in in canada 20 seconds please
1: yeah sure you know you know roy if uh, we don't learn from history we're apt to repeat it right and so so i think we've really learned how to improve our approach from the physician standpoint and so we have hope now the federal government has realized okay we really had some some uh you know unintended consequences that occurred to these chronic pain patients and we need to address them we need to fix it and so let's hope it just uh, down to the prevention level
0: if you want to hear more subscribe to the roy green show on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorites